too. Time its place in history and on the map knows it no more. The ancient church of Kilnsey lost half its fabric in 1826, and the rest followed in 1831. Albrough Church and the castle of Grimstone had entirely vanished. Mapleton Church was formerly two miles from the sea, it is now on a cliff with the sea at its feet, awaiting the final attack of the all-devouring enemy. Nearly a century ago Alborn Church and Churchyard were overwhelmed, and the shore was strewn with ruins and shattered coffins. On the Tyneside the destruction has been remarkable and rapid. In the district of Saltworks there was a house built standing on the cliff, but it was never finished, and fell a prey to the waves. At Percy Square an inn and two cottages have been destroyed. The edge of the cliff in 1827 was 80 feet seaward, and the banks of Percy Square receded 180 feet between the years 1827 and 1892. Altogether four acres have disappeared. An old Roman building, locally known as Ginling Geordie's Hole, and large masses of the castle cliff fell into the sea in the 80s. The remains of the once flourishing town of Seaton, on the Durham coast, can be discovered amid the sands at low tide. The modern village has sunk inland and cannot now boast of an ancient chapel dedicated to St. Thomas of Canterbury, which has been devoured by the waves. Skagness, on the Lincolnshire coast, was a large and important town, it boasted of a castle with strong fortifications and a church with a lofty spire, it now lies deep beneath the devouring sea, which no guarding walls could conquer. Far out at sea, beneath the waves, lies old Cromer Church, and when storms rage its bells are set to chime, the churchyard wherein was written the pathetic ballad, The Garden of Sleep, is gradually disappearing, and, the graves of the fair women that sleep by the cliffs by the sea, have been outraged, and their bodies scattered and devoured by the pitiless waves. One of the greatest prizes of the sea is the ancient city of Dunvike, which dates back to the Roman era. The Domesdati survey shows that it was then a considerable town having 236 burgesses. It was burnt with strong walls, it possessed an episcopal palace the seat of the East Anglian bishopric, it had so store asserts 52 churches, a monastery, brazen gates, a town hall, hospitals, and the dignity of possessing a mint, store tells of its departed glories, its royal and episcopal palaces, the sumptuous mansion of the mayor, its numerous churches and its windmills, its harbor crowded with shipping, which sent forth 40 vessels for the king's service in the 13th century, though Dunvik was an important place. Stowe's description of it is rather exaggerated. It could never have had more than ten churches and monasteries. Its brazen gates are mythical, though it had its leper's gate, south gate, and others. It was once a thriving city of wealthy merchants and industrious fishermen. King John granted to it a charter. It suffered from the attacks of armed men as well as from the ravages of the sea. Earl Bigot and the revolting barons besieged it in the reign of Edward I. Its decay was gradual. In 1342, in the parish of St. Nicholas, out of 300 houses only 18 remained, only 7 out of 100 houses were standing in the parish of St. Martin, St. Peter's parish was devastated and depopulated, it had a small round church, like that at Cambridge, called the Temple, once the property of the Knights Templars, richly endowed with costly gifts, this was a place of sanctuary, as were the other churches in the city. With the destruction of the houses came also the decay of the port which no ships could enter. Its rival, Southwold, attracted the vessels of strangers. The markets and fairs were deserted. Silence and ruin reigned over the doomed town. And the ruined church of all saints is all that remains of its former glories. Save what the storms sometimes toss along the beach for the study and edification of antiquaries. 
As we proceed down the coast we find that the sea is still gaining on the land. The old church at Walton on the Naze was swept away, and is replaced by a new one. A flourishing town existed at Reculver, which dates back to the Romans. It was a prosperous place, and had a noble church, which in the 16th century was a mile from the sea. Steadily had the waves advanced, until a century ago the church fell into the sea, save to towers which had been preserved by means of elaborate sea walls as a landmark for sailors. The fickle sea has deserted some towns and destroyed their prosperity, it has receded all along the coast from Folkestone to the Sussex border, and left some of the famous sink ports, some of which we shall visit again, Lynn, Romney, Hythe, Richborough, Stoner, Sandwich, and Sahai and Dry, with little or no access to the sea. Winchelsea has had a strange career, the old town lies beneath the waves, but a new Winchelsea arose, once a flourishing port but now deserted and forlorn with the sea a mile away. Right, too, has been forsaken. It was once an island, now the little rother stream conveys small vessels to the sea, which looks very far away. We cannot follow all the victories of the sea. We might examine the inroads made by the waves at Selsey. There stood the first cathedral of the district before Chichester was founded. The building is now beneath the sea, and since Saxon times half of the Selsey bill has vanished. The village of Selsey rested securely in the center of the peninsula, but only half a mile now separates it from the sea. Some land has been gained near this projecting headland by an industrious farmer. His farm surrounded a large cove with a narrow mouth through which the sea poured. If he could only dam up that entrance, he thought he could rescue the bed of the cove and add to his acres. He bought an old ship and sank it by the entrance and proceeded to drain. But a tiresome storm arose and drove the ship right across the cove and the sea poured in again, by no means discouraged, he dammed up the entrance more effectually, got rid of the water, increased his farm by many acres, and the old ship makes an admirable cowshed, the Isle of Wight in remote geological periods was part of the mainland, the Silly Isles were once joined with Cornwall, and were not severed until the 14th century, when by a mighty storm and flood, 140 churches and villages were destroyed and overwhelmed, and 190 square miles of land carried away. Much land has been lost in the Wirral district of Cheshire. Great forests have been overwhelmed, as the skulls and bones of deer and horse and freshwater shellfish have been frequently discovered at low tide. Fifty years ago a distance of half a mile separated Leesow's castle from the sea, now its walls are washed by the waves. The Pennystone, off the Lancashire coast by Blackpool, tells of a submerged village and manor about which cluster romantic legends, such as the sad record of the sea's destruction, for which the industrious reclamation of land, the compensations wrought by the accumulation of shingle and sand dunes and the silting of estuaries can scarcely compensate us. How does the sea work this? There are certain rock-boring animals, such as the fallas, which help to decay the rocks. Each mollusk cuts a series of honor holes from two to four inches deep, and so assists in destroying the bulwarks of England atmospheric action, the disintegration of soft rocks by frost and by the attack of the sea below, all tend in the same direction, but the foolish action of man in removing shingle, the natural protection of our coasts, is also very mischievous, there is an instance of this in the Hall Sands and B Sands, Devon, a company a few years ago obtained authority to dredge both from the foreshore and seabed, the commissioners of woods and forests and the board of trade granted this permission the latter receiving a royalty of L50 and the former L150. This occurred in 1896. 
Soon afterwards a heavy gale arose and caused an immense amount of damage, the result entirely of this dredging. The company had to pay heavily, and the royalties were returned to them. This is only one instance out of many which might be quoted. We are an illogical nation, and our regulations and authorities are weirdly confused. It appears that the foreshore is under the control of the Board of Trade, and then a narrow strip of land is ruled over by the commissioners of woods and forests. Of course these bodies do not agree, different policies are pursued by each, and the coast suffers. Large sums are sometimes spent in coast defense works. That spur no less than L37.433 has been spent out of parliamentary grants, besides L14.227 out of the Mercantile Marine Fund. Corporations or county authorities, finding their coasts being worn away, resolve to protect it. They obtain a grant in aid from Parliament, spend vast sums, and often find their work entirely thrown away, or proving itself most disastrous to their neighbors. If you protect one part of the coast you destroy another, such is the rule of the sea. If you try to beat it back at one point it will revenge itself on another. If only you can cause shingle to accumulate before your threatened town or homestead, you know you can make the place safe and secure from the waves. But if you stop this flow of shingle you may protect your own homes, but you deprive your neighbors of the safeguard against the ravages of the sea. It was so at Deal. The good folks of Deal placed groins in order to stop the flow of shingle and protect the town. They did their duty well, they stopped the shingle and made a good bulwark against the sea. With what result? In a few years' time they caused the destruction of Sandone, which had been deprived of its natural protection. Mr. W. Whitaker, FRS who has walked along the whole coast from Norfolk to Cornwall, besides visiting other parts of our English shore, and whose contributions to the report of the Royal Commission on Coast Erosion are so valuable, remembers when a boy the castle of Sandone, which dated from the time of Henry the III. It was then in a sound condition and was inhabited. Now it is destroyed and the batteries farther north have gone to. The same thing is going on at Dover. The Admiralty Pier causes the accumulation of shingle on its west side, and prevents it from following its natural course in a northeasterly direction. Hence the base of the cliffs on the other side of the pier and harbor is left bare and unprotected, this aids erosion. And not infrequently do we hear of the fall of the chalk cliffs. Isolated schemes for the prevention of coast erosion are of little avail. They can do no good and only increase the waste and destruction of land in neighboring shores. Stringent laws should be passed to prevent the taking away of shingle from protecting beaches, and to prohibit the plowing of land near the edge of cliffs, which greatly assists atmospheric destructive action from above. The state has recently threatened the abandonment of the Coast Guard service. This would be a disastrous policy, though the primary object of Coast Guards, the prevention of smuggling, has almost passed away. The old sailors who act as guardians of our coastline render valuable services to the country. They are most full in looking after the foreshore. They save many lives from wrecked vessels, and keep watch and ward to guard our shores, and give timely notice of the advance of a hostile fleet, or of that ever-present foe which, though it affords some protection for our island home from armed invasion, does not fail to exact a heavy tithe from the land it guards and has destroyed so many once flourishing towns and villages by its ceaseless attack. Chapter III Old Walled Towns The destruction of ancient buildings always causes grief and distress to those who love antiquity. It is much to be deplored, but in some cases is perhaps inevitable. 
old-fashioned half-timbered shops with small diamond pane windows are not the most convenient for the display of the elegant fashionable costumes effectively draped on modeled forms. Motor cars cannot be displayed in antiquated old shops. Hence in modern up-to-date towns these old buildings are doomed, and have to give place to grand emporiums with large plate glass windows and the refinements of luxurious display. We hope to visit presently some of the old towns and cities which happily retain their ancient beauties, where quaint houses with oversiling upper stories still exist, and with the artist's aid to describe many of their attractions. Although much of the destruction island as I have said, inevitable, a vast amount is simply the result of ignorance and willful perversity. Ignorant persons get elected on town councils worthy men doubtless, and able men of business, who can attend to and regulate the financial affairs of the town look after its supply of gas and water, its drainage and tramways, but they are absolutely ignorant of its history, its associations, of architectural beauty, of anything that is not modern and utilitarian, and happily, into the care of such men as these is often confided the custody of historic buildings and priceless treasures, of ruined abbey and ancient walls, of objects consecrated by the lapse of centuries and by the associations of hundreds of years of corporate life and it is not surprising that in many cases they betray their trust, they are not interested in such things, let bygones be bygones, they say, we care not for old rubbish, moreover, they frequently resent interference and instruction, hence they destroy wholesale what should be preserved, and England is the poorer, not long ago the Edwardian wall of Berwick-on-Tweed was threatened with demolition at the hands of those who ought to be its guardians the corporation of the town, an official from the office of works, when he saw the begrimed, neglected appearance of the two fragments of this wall near the bell tower, with a stagnant pool in the fosse, bestrewed with broken pictures and rubbish, reported that the Elizabethan walls of the town which were under the direction of the war department were in excellent condition, whereas the Edwardian masonry was utterly neglected, and why was this relic of the town's former greatness to be pulled down, simply to clear the site for the erection of modern dwelling houses? A very strong protest was made against this act of municipal barbarism by learned societies, the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Buildings, and others, and we hope that the hand of the destroyer has been stayed. Most of the principal towns in England were protected by walls, and the citizens regarded it as a duty to build them and keep them in repair. When we look at some of these fortifications, their strength, their height, their thickness, we are struck by the fact that they were very great achievements and that they must have been raised with immense labor and gigantic cost. In turbulent and warlike times they were absolutely necessary. Look at some of these triumphs of medieval engineering skill. So strong, so massive, able to defy the attacks of lance and arrow, ram or catapult, and to withstand ages of neglect and the storms of a tempestuous climb. Towers and bastions stood at intervals against the wall at convenient distances in order that bowmen stationed in them could shoot down any who attempted to scale the wall with ladders anywhere within the distance between the towers. All along the wall there was a protected pathway for the defenders to stand, and machicolations through which boiling oil or lead, or heated sand could be poured on the heads of the attacking force. The gateways were carefully constructed, flanked by defending towers with a portcullis, and a guard room overhead with holes in the vaulted roof of the gateway for pouring down inconvenient substances upon the heads of the besiegers. There were several gates, the usual number being four, but Coventry had twelve, Canterbury six, and Newcastle on Tyne seven, besides posterns, Berwick upon Tweed, York, Chester, 
and Conway had maintained their walls in good condition. Pervik has three out of its four gates still standing, they are called Scotchgate, Shoregate, and Cowgate, and in the last two still remain the original massive wooden gates with their bolts and hinges, the remaining fourth gate, named Bridgate, has vanished. We had alluded to the neglect of the Edwardian Wall and its threatened destruction. Conway has a wall a mile and a quarter in length, with 21 semicircular towers along its course and three great gateways besides posterns. Edward I built this wall in order to subjugate the Welsh, and also the walls round Carnarvon, some of which survive, and Bowery's. The name of his master Mason has been preserved, one Henry Lowden. The monuments of the Corporation of Almick prove that often great difficulties arose in the matter of wall building. Its closeness to the Scottish border rendered a wall necessary. The town was frequently attacked and burnt. The inhabitants obtained a license to build a wall in 1433, but they did not at once proceed with the work. In 1448 the Scots came and pillaged the town, and the poor burgesses were so robbed and despoiled that they could not afford to proceed with the wall and petitioned the king for aid. Then letters patent were issued for a collection to be made for the object, and at last, 40 years after the license was granted, Almick got its wall, and a very good wall it was a mile in circumference, 20 feet in height and 6 in thickness, it had 4 gateways Bond Gate, Clayport, Potter Gate, and Narrow Gate, only the first named of these is standing, it is 3 stories in height, over the central archway is a panel on which was carved the Brabant Lion, now almost obliterated. On either side is a semi-octagonal tower. The masonry is composed of huge blocks to which time and weather have given dusky tints. On the front facing the expected foes the openings are but little more than arrow slits. On that within, facing the town, are well-proportioned buoyant and transomed windows. The great ribbed archway is grooved for a portcullis, now removed, and a low doorway on either side gives entrance to the chambers in the towers. Pottergate was rebuilt in the 18th century and crowns a steep street. Only four corner stones marked T indicate the site of Clayport. No trace of Narrowgate remains, as the destruction of many of our castles is due to the action of Cromwell and the Parliament, who caused them to be slighted, partly out of revenge upon the loyal owners who had defended them. So several of our town walls were thrown down by order of Charles I.I. at the Restoration on account of the active assistance which the townspeople had given to the rebels. The heads of rebels were often placed on gateways. London Bridge. Lincoln, Newcastle, York, Berwick, Canterbury, Temple Bar, and other gates have often been adorned with these gruesome relics of barbarous punishments. How were these strong walls ever taken in the days before gunpowder was extensively used or cannon discharged their devastating shells? Imagine you are present at a siege. You would see the attacking force advancing a huge wooden tower, covered with hides and placed on wheels, towards the walls. Inside this tower were ladders and when the south had been pushed towards the wall the soldiers rushed up these ladders and were able to fight on a level with the garrison. Perhaps they were repulsed, and then a shed-like structure would be advanced towards the wall, so as to enable the men to get close enough to dig a hole beneath the walls in order to bring them down. The besieged would not be inactive, but would cast heavy stones on the roof of the shed. Molten lead and burning flax were favorite means of defense to alarm and frighten away the enemy who retaliated by casting heavy stones by means of a catapult into the town. The Builder, April 16, 1904. Amongst the fragments of walls still standing, those at Newcastle are very massive, sooty, and impressive. Southampton has some grand walls left and a gateway, 
which show how strongly the town was fortified. The old sink port, Sandwich, formerly a great and important town, lately decayed, but somewhat renovated by golf, has two gates left, and Rochester and Canterbury have some fragments of their walls standing. The repair of the walls of towns was sometimes undertaken by guilds, generous benefactors, like Sir Richard Whittington, frequently contributed to the cost, and sometimes a tax called Moorage was levied for the purpose which was collected by officers named Mooragers. The city of York has lost many of its treasures, and the city fathers seem to find it difficult to keep their hands off such relics of antiquity as are left to them. There are few cities in England more deeply marked with the impress of the storied past than York the long and moving story of its gates and walls, of the historical associations of the city through century after century of English history. About eighty years ago the corporation destroyed the picturesque old barbicans of the Bootham, Gate, and Monk Bars, and only one, Longgate, was suffered to retain this interesting feature. It is a wonder they spared those curious stone half-length figures of men sculptured in a menacing attitude in the act of hurling large stones downwards, which vaunt themselves on the summit of Monk Bar probably intended to deceive invaders or that interesting stone platform only 22 inches wide, which was the only foothold available for the Marshall burghers who guarded the city wall at Tower Place. A year or two ago the city fathers decided, in order to provide work for the unemployed, to interfere with the city moats by laying them out as flower beds and by planting shrubs and making playgrounds of the banks. The protest of the York's Archaeological Society, we believe, stayed their hands. The same story can be told of far too many towns and cities. A few years ago several old houses were demolished in the high street of the city of Rochester to make room for electric tramways. Among these was the old White Hart Inn, built in 1396. The sign being a badge of Richard I.I where Samuel Pepe stayed, he found that the beds were cord, and we had no sheets to our beds, only linen to our mouths, a narrow strip of linen to prevent the contact of the blanket with the face. With regard to the disappearance of old inns, we must wait until we arrive at another chapter. We will now visit some old towns where we hope to discover some buildings that are ancient and where all is not distressingly new, hideous, and commonplace. First we will travel to the old world town of Lynn, Lynn Regis, vulgarly called King's Lynn, as the royal charter of Henry VIII terms it. On the land side the town was defended by a fosse, and there are still considerable remains of the old wall, including the fine Gothic south gates. In the days of its ancient glory it was known as Bishop's Lynn, the town being in the hands of the Bishop of Norwich. Bishop Herbert de Luzinga built the Church of St. Margaret at the beginning of the 12th century and gave it with many privileges to the monks of Norwich, who held a priory at Lynn, and Bishop Turdus did a wonderfully good stroke of business, reclaimed a large tract of land about 1150 AD and amassed wealth for his see from his markets, fairs, and mills. Another bishop, Bishop Gray, induced or compelled King John to grant a free charter to the town, but astutely managed to keep all the power in his own hands. Lynn was always a very religious place, and most of the orders Benedictines, Franciscans, Dominicans, Carmelite and Augustinian friars, and the Sac friars were represented at Lynn, and there were numerous hospitals, a laser house, a college of secular canons, and other religious institutions, until they were all swept away by the greed of a rapacious king. There is not much left today of all these religious foundations. The latest authority on the history of Lynn, Mr. H. J. Hillen, well says, Times and Pudding Plowshare has spared few vestiges of their architectural grandeur. 
a cemetery cross in the museum. The name, Paradise, that keeps up the remembrance of the cool, verdant cloister garth, a brick arch upon the east bank of the Nar, and a similar gateway in Austin Street are all the relics that remain of the old monastic life. Save the slender hexagonal old tower, the graceful lantern of the convent of the gray-robed Franciscans. The above writer also points out the beautifully carved door in Queen Street, sole relic of the College of Secular Canons, from which the chisel of the ruthless iconoclast has chipped off the obnoxious orate pro anima. Transcriber's note, original, architectural, the quiet, narrow, almost deserted streets of Lynn. Its port and keys have another story to tell. They proclaim its former greatness as one of the chief ports in England and the center of vast mercantile activity. A 14th century historian, Friar William Newberg, described Lynn as a noble city noted for its trade. It was the key of Norfolk, through it flowed all the traffic to and from northern East Anglia, and from its harbor crowds of ships carried English produce, mainly wool, to the Netherlands, Norway, and the Rhine provinces. Who would have thought that the Stockade Harbor ranked fourth among the ports of the kingdom? But its glories have departed. Decay set in. Its prosperity began to decline. Railways have been the ruin of King's Lynn. The merchant princes who once abounded in the town exist here no longer. The last of the long race died quite recently. Some ancient ledgers still exist in the town, which exhibit for one firm alone a turnover of something like a million and a half sterling per annum, although possessed of a similarly splendid waterway. And like it switch, the trade of the town seems to have quite decayed. Few signs of commerce are visible, except where the advent of branch stations of enterprising cash firms has resulted in the squaring up of odd projections and consequent overthrow of certain ancient buildings. There is one act of vandalism which the town has never ceased to regret and which should serve as a warning for the future. This is the demolition of the house of Walter Coney, merchant, and an equaled specimen of 15th century domestic architecture which formerly stood at the corner of the Saturday Marketplace and High Street. So strongly was this edifice constructed that it was with the utmost difficulty that it was taken to pieces, in order to make room for the ugly range of white brick buildings which now stands upon its site. But Lynn had an air of much prosperity during the rise of the townshends, when the agricultural improvements brought about by the second Viscount introduced much wealth to Norfolk. Such buildings as the Duke's Head Hotel belonged to the second Viscount's time and are indicative of the influx of visitors which the town enjoyed. In the present day this hotel, though still a good-sized establishment, occupies only half the building which it formerly did. An interesting oak staircase of fine proportions, though now much warped, may be seen here. In olden days the Hanseatic League had an office here. The Jews were plentiful and supplied capital you can find their traces in the name of the Jews Lane Ward, and then came the industrious Flemings who brought with them the art of weaving cloth and peculiar modes of building houses, so that Lynn looks almost like a little Dutch town. The old guild life of Lynn was strong and vigorous, from its merchant guild to the humbler craft guilds, of which we are told that there had been no less than 75. Part of the old guild hall, erected in 1421, with its checkered flint and stone gable still stands facing the market of St. Margaret with its Renaissance porch and a bit of the Guild Hall of St. George the Martyr remains in King Street. The Custom House, which was originally built as an exchange for the Lynn Merchants, is a notable building, and has a statue of Charles I.I. placed in a niche. This was the earliest work of a local architect, Henry Bell, who was almost unknown. He was mayor of King's Lynn, and died in 1717, and his memory has been saved from oblivion by Mr. Below of that town. 
and is enshrined in Mr. Blomfield's History of Renaissance Architecture. This admirable little building originally consisted of an open loggia about 40 feet by 32 feet outside, with four columns down the center, supporting the first floor, and an attic story above. The walls are of Portland stone, with a Doric order to the ground story supporting an Ionic order to the first floor. The cornice is of wood, and above this is a steep pitched tile roof with dormers, surmounted by a balustrade enclosing a flat, from which rises a most picturesque wooden cupola. The details are extremely refined, and the technical knowledge and delicate sense of scale and proportion shown in this building are surprising in a designer who was under 30, and is not known to have done any previous work. History of Renaissance Architecture By R. Blomfield A building which the town should make an effort to preserve is the old Greenland Fishery House, a tenement dating from the commencement of the 17th century. The Duke's Head Inn, erected in 1689, now spoiled by its coating of plaster. A house in Queen Street, the Old Market Cross, destroyed in 1831 and sold for old materials, and the altarpieces of the churches of St. Margaret and St. Nicholas, destroyed during Restoration, and North Rankton Church, three miles from Lynn, are other works of this very able artist, until the Reformation Lynn was known as Bishop's Lynn, and gulled itself under the yoke of the Bishop of Norwich, but Henry freed the townsfolk from their bondage and ordered the name to be changed to Lynn Regis. Whether the good people throve better under the control of the tyrant who crushed all their guilds and appropriated the spoil than under the episcopal yoke may be doubtful, but the change pleased them, and with satisfaction they placed the royal arms on their east gate, which, after the manner of gates and walls, has been pulled down. If you doubt the former greatness of this old seaport you must examine its civic plate. It possesses the oldest and most important and most beautiful specimen of municipal plate in England, a grand. Massive silver gilt cup of exquisite workmanship. It is called King John's Cup, but it cannot be earlier than the reign of Edward III. In addition to this, there is a superb sort of state of the time of Henry III. Another cup, four silver maces, and other treasures. Moreover, the town had a famous goldsmith's company, and several specimens of their handicraft remain. The defenses of the town were sorely tried in the Civil War, when for three weeks it sustained the attacks of the rebels. The town was forced to surrender, and the poor folk were obliged to pay ten shillings a head, besides a month's pay to tea.